Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome to episode 195 of the Modern Bar Cart podcast. I'm your host, Modern Bar Cart CEO, Eric Koslick. Thanks for joining me for this interview episode where we track down the best and brightest minds in the spirits and cocktail world so that we can share their secrets with you. This time around, I hang out with Nicholas Polaki, co-founder of Shibui Whiskey, a new Japanese whiskey company dedicated to ushering in a new era of premium-aged grain distillates from the island nation of Japan. Now, many of you will hear that and think, ah, yeah, Japanese whiskey, I know that. And you're right, but you might be missing a few of the finer details. That's what Nicholas and I are here to discuss with you during our interview. But before we dive into a seven-bottle tasting of Shibui's diverse offerings and educate you on the history and scope of Japanese spirits, let's take a quick detour so that you can make yourself a drink. This episode's featured cocktail is the Japanese Whiskey Highball. It's officially summer here in the U.S., which means it's time to start breaking out the hyper-refreshing bubbly drinks before we overheat. To make your perfect Japanese Whiskey Highball, you'll need... One and a half to two ounces of Japanese whiskey. Go with something that retails for $50 a bottle or less. And four to five ounces of carbonated water. You can opt for sparkling or mineral water, but the large bubbles and sodium content of club soda tend to also be a great fit. In a highball glass with the best ice you can muster, this would, in a perfect world, be crystal clear and free of imperfections, pour in your whiskey, top carefully with your sparkling water of choice, Garnish with a nice, expressed citrus twist, and enjoy. Here, I need to post a bit of a gripe. A pretty big gripe, in fact. A glaring omission on the part of Google's algorithm, or perhaps the internet in general. It has been pointed out on many different websites, blogs, and occasions that it is traditional to stir the Japanese whiskey highball for 13 or 13 and a half clockwise rotations, or revolutions, before serving with, by some accounts, other optional flourishes. But when I try to locate the reasoning or purpose behind this numerology, I'm met with a whole bunch of nothing. No primary sources, no secondary sources, just a bunch of people, lazy people, quoting, or not even quoting, other lazy people. Which means, dear listener, my Google skills have failed you, and perhaps we'll need Nicholas to come back on the show and demystify this widely held but poorly supported notion that there is a set way to stir the Japanese whiskey highball, and that a certain number of revolutions of the spoon around the inside rim of the glass make a meaningful or ritualistic difference. I'm so bent out of shape about this because I like this sort of thing. Generally, ritual ties you to some tradition that it behooves you not to forget, so I dearly love to put you in touch with the underlying logic for this carefully executed stir, but alas, I can't find a compelling enough source to justify it yet. I'm still on the lookout. And if I find it, I'll be sure to update you. So, now that you're all set up with a highly refreshing cocktail, with one majorly dissatisfying assembly requirement, let's turn our attention back to the interview. In this fascinating deep dive on Japanese whiskey past and present, some of the topics I discuss with Nicholas Palaki of Shibui Whiskey include 
the complicated history of Japanese whiskey making, including the sharp left turn that makes this tradition diverge and reconnect surprisingly with other world whiskey cultures. How Shibui is looking to help Japanese distillers and master blenders embrace a new, more collaborative mindset and source more compelling cooperage. Then we embark upon an ambitious seven-spirit tasting that spans Shibui's Nagata and Okinawa collections, showcasing wheat, malt, and rice whiskeys from some of Japan's best artisan distillers. During this tasting, we cover the nuances of different grain bases and barrel finishes, including the legendary Mizunara oak grown in Japan, as well as different ways to think about Japanese whiskey in the greater world whiskey landscape. Along the way, we discuss the difference between whiskey and Okinawan awamori, the effects of colonialism on the Japanese approach to distilled spirits, what to drink with legendary Scotch distiller William Grant, and much, much more. One thing that comes across loud and clear in this interview is the thirst for transparency that Nicholas models at every step of the manufacturing process. This is, almost surprisingly, a bit of a departure from the historical state of Japanese whiskey affairs, so I couldn't have asked for a better entree into this world, nor a better guide, and I hope that all you whiskey aficionados out there will enjoy this stimulating conversation and tasting with Nicholas Palaki of Shibui Whiskey. Nicholas, welcome to the podcast. Eric, thanks so much for having me. Delighted to be here. So we're going to talk and taste Japanese whiskey today, which I'm extremely excited about. But before we do that, can you just give us a quick introduction uh, for our audience? Who are you and what do you do? <laughs> Fantastic. So my name is Nicholas Polaki. I am a co-owner and head of Global Whiskey for Shibui. Uh, and my background is basically all... Uh, as you can see from my physical background, my mate, it's all booze. Uh, I've, I'm born and bred in Scotland. I was born in the west coast of Scotland. I grew up with the sounds and smells of, of, a, of a whiskey distillery on my doorstep. I grew up in a town called Dumbarton, which was home to the Ballantines Distillery, which at one point was the largest grain distillery in the world. Uh, I have worked in the whiskey business for basically the last 20 years. I used to be the global PR director for McAllen, Highland Park, and Glenrothes. I moved to the United States in 2010 to work for Balvenie. Uh, in 2012, I launched a company called The Whiskey Dog, and we consulted with literally about 120 different whiskey companies from all around the world. During that time period, I actually met uh, one of the business partners and the founders of, of IND Beverages, who own Shibui. And that's uh, two sisters. We're, a, we're actually a women-owned company. So Lauren and Rachel Simmons are the two sisters that started IND Beverages. And, and um, Lauren and I worked together actually on another Japanese whiskey brand, you might know it, called Nika. Uh, we also worked on Cavalan from Taiwan and, uh, you know, Glendronic, Benrich, Glenglasso, like amazing Scotch whiskies as well at that time. And I'm a contributor on CNBC to talk about whiskey as an alternative investment and some other fun stuff. And people want to kind of learn about whiskey in that aspect. But basically, for the last three years, we've been working on pulling different samples from lots of different distilleries across Japan, 1,400 different cast samples to create nine expressions of whiskey, which are now bottled as Shibui. So it's been quite fun. <laughs> yeah, man, that, that's quite a, a hit parade of, uh, of resume items there from, from the Scotch whiskey all the way to the uh, Japanese and, and Taiwanese uh, whiskeys that you have there on your 
in your portfolio, I should say. Uh, so first of all, what does Shibui mean? And I, I think you you started to explain a little bit how it might be different from like uh, a Nika or like a, a Suntory whiskey. Um, what how what what does Shibui mean, and how is the project slightly different than other Japanese whiskeys that we might see out on the market? That's a great question, Eric. So Shibui basically it's in in traditional Japanese it's part of art and beauty, but in slang terminology the word Shibui is used. It basically means old school cool like timeless and classic and it it's slightly effortless at, at just being excellent and that is kind of the approach that we take with everything as you can tell we're, we're not a traditional i don't want to use the word stuffy but there is an element of kind of stuffiness around some whiskey brands and we specifically went out to knock that down we were just like look there's a lot of mystique around japanese whiskeys all the brands out there, I would say, are, are wonderful and magnificent. And I want to start by saying that because the, the, those brands have done a magnificent job of doing what they do. But the, there's also a, a lack of transparency around the world of Japanese whiskies and a lack of education, really, because, well, it's Japanese, so buy it and, you know, it's good. That doesn't really, doesn't really help educate. We, whereas in Scotland, we spend so much time and resources and effort and money educating the consumer around what's in the glass that doesn't really happen with Japanese whiskey. So when, when Laura and Rachel and I started to, to work on the project, basically what we wanted to do was say, look, there are some amazing whiskeys out there that probably wouldn't see the light of day if we didn't go out, partner with these distilleries, sit down and speak to the, their master blenders and the, the whiskey making teams and say, look, here's what we want to do long term. Are you in or are you out? And we've managed to find four different distilleries. And, you know, we're, we're expanding on that, but we've got four amazing distilleries that we work with across two different regions of Japan. Um, and and we, look at, we look at two very specific ways of, of talking about whiskey. We have World Blends, which is our Nagata range, and then we have Single Grain Whiskies from Okinawa. And, and that's something that we, as, as a team, are starting to get excited about because there are more and more consumers, especially in the United States, looking to understand how these whiskies are even put together and what makes them inherently Japanese. And that's part of the challenge. You know, there's a big conversation around the world of Japanese whiskies, and it's it's single-handedly the most unique range of whiskies ever. And the reason I say that is because all whiskies are based in agriculture, all of them, except for how the world views Japanese whiskey. And that is one of the challenges that we've taken on to start to get excited about and to, to educate people about. Yeah, that's very, very exciting. I want to return to that point you just made. But but first, uh, for our listeners who might be somewhat familiar with the Scotch whiskey world, would you consider Shibui to be something akin to an independent bottler? And or would you maybe compare what you're doing to something like a, a Compass Box uh, is doing over in Scotland? Or is there are there some slight differences that I might be missing? No, you're probably closer. So for us, so first and foremost, I think it's important that uh, some people that get into the world of whiskey automatically think that they're whiskey makers. I'm not a whiskey maker. There are people that have done this for generations and we have amazing whiskey making teams. However, what I'm starting to do with the teams in, in Japan is use the relationships that we've got in places like Scotland and places like Spain and places like Madeira for cast selections and procurement. We're talking about 
finding and sourcing things in France for different wine barriques. We're looking at different things in America for specific American bourbon casks and other different finishing. And we've got these distilleries for the first time ever, and we'll get to this in a little bit, but basically Japanese whiskey distilleries have never worked together. They don't do that. They don't cross-pollinate the way that we do in Scotland, but they are doing that with us. And they're doing it because we're showing them that actually you don't have to keep operating in the way that you were told. There's a way for us to collaborate and create better, more interesting products. So from that standpoint, I would definitely say we're following that compass box, you know, high west style of this is how we can do things that are really interesting. Uh, but we are we're definitely working with the, the whiskey making teams to, to for them to showcase their talents. Um, and that that's important, you know, the, the teams that we've picked. The distilleries that we partner with they're spectacular and from our standpoint we want to showcase their abilities and then celebrate them through shibui yeah and i do think that this actually does tie back perhaps to the point that, that you were making about uh agriculture uh in that you know yes you're celebrating these amazing japanese whiskey makers but one of the points that you just made is that you're leveraging your and your team's expertise to bring in some of these interesting new barrels uh, for cask finishes and and thereby advancing some of the conversations and opening up some options that might not have otherwise been available um, to traditional Japanese whiskey operations, uh, which I think is great. It, it sort of makes me think of like independent bottler 2.0 where where there's also like business development going on uh as opposed to just you know uh one of the what you might call old school independent bottlers that just waltzes in and demands an old rare barrel and and then you know fills you know a couple thousand bottles with that and and sells it for a super high price point just because it's an old rare barrel that's been sitting in someone's uh, Scottish distillery for for a couple decades. Uh, so I, I like the business development aspect of it. And I like the uh, sort of evolution and future mindedness of it. Uh, but let's let's come back to that idea about uh, Japanese whiskey as perhaps being a bit of an exception when it comes to the agriculture conversation because Japan is a long strip of rocks in the Pacific Ocean. And uh, agriculture is an interesting concept in, in Japan or in interesting set of practices because obviously there are grains and there are ingredients being grown on the island, but there certainly seem to be some pretty strict limitations and, and maybe some other cultural things going on in there too. So can you elaborate on that point? Certainly. So when I talk about agriculture, and I'm talking about the 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 trajectories of whiskies. Whiskies all have a story. They didn't, we didn't all, in Scotland, we didn't, you know, create a spirit and distill it the way that we do now and then put it into oak barrels because we understood it. It took time. It was a stepping stone process to get to that result. And in Japan, they were on that path and then took a hard left. <laughs> it was the easiest way to, a hard left right to Scotland, uh, effectively. And we'll get there. So basically, when I say that all whiskies are based in agriculture. They are. Fundamentally, we need, you know, they're simple ingredients. The processes are, you know, thousands of years old. But the, the ingredients are, are based in, in the land of agriculture. So in Scotland, we grow wheat and we grow barley. And the farmers, which all whiskey starts with farmers, most distilleries back in Scotland started with farmers having farmland and they needed and needed. They were excited to produce their own spirit, but they also needed something that was a tradable commodity if, for example, there was a bad harvest year. So the farmers were dis illicitly distilling effectively moonshine using the grain of the land, so wheat and barley. 
and that moonshine, uh, you know, back in that time was it was a fifty-fifty whether it was going to make you really drunk or really dead, and uh, not not a good gamble to take. Uh, but as the the want for that type of spirit, cleric at the time in Scotland and Gaelic, uh, it would find its way into transportation either to other parts of Scotland, down to London. It could be going back to, to Spain or to France, trading partners with Scotland at the time. And we were using the oak barrels that they were perhaps sending us that would have sherry or that would have different wine in them. That was just whatever we could get our hands on. But what we found is once it got to its destination, it was golden in colour. It was richer in flavour. It produced and, 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 and saturated the flavour profiles of the oak into the spirit and become more palatable and become soft and become just a much more interesting uh, flavour profile. And hence, you know, the light bulb goes off in Scotland and the understanding of oak maturation takes place and we start to have Scotch whiskey. Uh, same thing is true in America. You know, moonshiners, the farmers uh, making moonshine. The moonshine is made of the grain of the land, which was corn. Um, inevitably, then, they start having, of course, 100% corn whiskies, but corn uh, becoming the, the the base of all mash bills, you know, at least 51% corn for the majority of mash bills, especially, well, exclusively if it's bourbon. But the grain of the land then being distilled into moonshine, then finding its way into oak barrels, and lo and behold, American whiskies are born, bourbons are born, the story takes care of itself. In Japan, there is thousands of years of rice distillation going on. The grain, guess what they don't do in Japan? They don't grow wheat and they don't grow barley. Okay, as simple as that. They grow rice, that is the grain of Asia. So it's the largest cereal in the world, largest grain in the world. And uh, rice has shaped the land for everything, not just through its, its cuisine, but just through, you know, its, 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 its uh, brewing and its distillation, the same way that, that it has done for, for every other country in the world. So. You know, they've got sakis, they've got sochus, they've got awamoris, they've got other things. But, you know, awamori was, you know, a, a great example. It was, you know, it was distilled in Okinawa. It was very, very specific. And we'll get into the processes in a little bit of time. But basically, instead of putting it into oak, they were putting it into clay pots and they were setting it in awamori caves for anywhere from, some of the awamoris were exceptional, 200, 300 years old. Most people don't actually know what awamori is. You, Eric, you mentioned it before we started recording live in it. It was exciting for me to hear that because most people genuinely have never heard of awamori. It is the oldest spirit in Japan. Uh, like it is, so that immediately, you're like, what? How have I never heard of the oldest spirit in Japan? But basically, it, it was being matured in clay pots. Uh, World War II destroyed most of the awamori caves in Okinawa, but the breweries and the distilleries and, and, and the, the places that have been on the land through you know seven, eight generations remained. So these um, distilleries, you know, instead of putting it into clay, started to lay down product into oak. That is the natural progression of all whiskey in the world ever, except for Japan, where in the 1920s, basically 1918, Mazatake Takitsuru, who is, uh, people talk about him in Nika as the godfather of Japanese whiskey, but interesting guy, went to uh, Scotland, um, spent two years in Scotland working for three or four different distilleries, married a Scottish woman, came back to Japan and basically said, we're doing it wrong. Because at that point, Japan was trying to recreate the flavor profiles of Scotch whiskies and, and American whiskies. And they were doing it using like perfumes and other different things rather than understanding oak maturation. They were trying to do it using you know, chemical compounds and, and highly toxic things that you probably wouldn't want to put in your body. 
um, and to not not much great success, being candid. And Mazataka Takatsuro came back and said, "Look, we're doing it all wrong. We're using all the wrong everything. We're using all the wrong cereals. You know, forget forget rice, forget the distillation processes that we've got. Let's just go and make a carbon copy of what's going on in Scotland." And he basically helped set up um, Suntory Group. Like he helped build uh, Yamazaki and and set up the processes for for what what was going on there. Um, he um, they started to 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 to, to use grain from Scotland and still to this day they still do so they were buying uh, barley from Scotland malted barley from Scotland and different wheat from from Scotland as well they were bringing it to Japan they had their stills built in Scotland and they had that brought to Japan they found a place in Japan that replicated the the visuals of Scotland to go and build a distillery and they built uh, this you know this is the beginnings of Suntory group effectively and uh, of what would become Suntory Group. And fast forward 10 years later, they, eight years later, they slightly fall out. Mazataka Takasuru separates from the group and builds Nika Distillery, the biggest competitor. But what's interesting about this is, this is because he left what he was doing to create a competitor, the two companies do not do the one thing that's allowed whiskey distilleries in Scotland to survive and thrive, which is we trade barrels. So if I'm in the Highlands of Scotland and I'm, you know, if I own a single malt distillery, I'm also still own it up. Nine times out of ten, I also own a blended brand. So when I'm in the processes of blending whiskies in Scotland, if I own whiskey distilleries that produce a very light, floral, aromatic style of spirit, but I want a little hint of smoky, peated whiskey to, to blend in to create complexity and character, I don't go and build another distillery and go through the whole processes and start lending that, that stock. I just go to... You know, the west coast of Scotland, and I'll go and speak to my friends at Laphroaig or Lagavulin, or you know, I'll, I'll go to you know Bowmore and say, "Hey, I've got a barrel of sweet whiskey. You've got a barrel of smoky whiskey. Let's trade." And that's what we do. We shake hands. I take the smoky whiskey and I blend it in. They take the sweet whiskey and they make their own blend with that, and it's fantastic. That's how blended whiskies have, have done so well globally, uh, and that doesn't happen in Japan because they don't want to work together, and which is terrifying and also very sad because all they've done is shortchange the amazing flavor profiles. Think, think of Scotland. Think of what has made Scotland. People talk about single malts, but actually the, you know, the biggest category for us is, is by, by far our blends. And the flavor profiles that you get with some of these amazing blends in Scotland are exceptional. Also, the master blenders, we don't have whiskey makers. There's no such job title as a whiskey maker. The whiskey maker is called a master blender. Like because they are blending lots of different flavor profiles together, whether it's for a single malt or whether it's for, for blended scotch or whether it's for blended malt or vatted malt or whatever you want to call it, the job is to blend liquid together and create something better than the individual components, right? So in Japan, that's not happened. But because they've not been able to blend whiskey domestically, what these companies have been doing for the last 100 years have been buying whiskey internationally for blending purposes. And the closest thing to using uh, whiskey that's distilled in Japan using Scottish grain and Scottish stills is Scottish whiskey. So a lot of these big brands have been blending Scotch whiskey, Irish whiskey, and American whiskey, some Canadian whiskeys as well, from time to time into the distillate and the matured whiskeys that they've created in Japan. The problem has been that they've not been telling you that. And I think that's crazy because the art that it takes, the skill that it takes to do that is exceptional because you're not just doing it with whiskies that you produce domestically, but you're also then blending in whiskies from around the world. Now, 
The reason that they've not talked about it is beyond me. I don't know, but it's one thing that we've started from the very beginning was to say, look, we have two ranges of whiskey. We have our Nagata range with Shibui, and those are world blends. We are blending whiskies from Scotland into the whiskies from Japan. We are absolutely candid about it because why would we not be? I, I, as a Scotsman, I see no reason not to. So I, I don't really care what's come before it. What I said to, to, to Lauren and Rachel at the time was, it doesn't really matter what's happened. It matters what we want to do. So let let everybody else do what they think is right. If we do what we think is right, then we can always hold our head up and be candid with the consumer and say, look, here's what's in the glass. We hope you like it. We think it's exceptional. We hope you like it. And then we have our Okinawa range, which are single grain rice whiskies. It's the grain of the land being distilled and matured in oak in that land. That to me is fundamentally what Japanese whiskies would have become had one guy not visited Scotland for two years. Like that's, that's an amazing feat. Like if you think about what Mazataka Suru did, it's amazing. But if you go to if you go to Suntory, they don't even mention his name. You go to Yamazaki Distillery, they don't even mention There's not a photograph of him anywhere. Right? And then in Nika, they call him the godfather of Japanese whiskey. Those two things can't be true. Like he can't be completely non-existent and the godfather of Japanese whiskey. What he was, was the pioneer of recreating Scotch whiskies in Japan. So let's mm. be very, very candid about what was going on at that time. Japanese whiskies, to me, are the grain from the land being distilled and matured in that land. You can't recreate single grain rice whiskies from Okinawa anywhere. You need the climate, you need the people, you need the masters of the master blenders from that land that know how to do it and have spent you know last you know 600 years refining that skill. You need the grain. You need the climate, everything. Everything is encompassed in that, la in that land. And that to me is really exciting. So for us at Shibui, we talk about our, our, our grain select, a pure malt and a pure malt 10-year-old as world blends. And they are magnificent because the master blending team in Nagata have to work with not just the whiskies that they produce in Japan, but the whiskies that, that they source from Scotland to create consistency and character and flavor. And importantly for us, and I don't know many other not only just Japanese whiskies, I can count in one hand how many Scotch whiskies can claim this. We're also 100% natural color. So our master blenders are blending not just for flavor, but they're also doing it with natural color and being consistent about it. And that is an amazing feat. Yeah, wow, that that's a lot. <laughs> um, one through line that I'm pulling out, uh, there's actually a couple. The contemporary through line that I'm that I'm pulling out from from what you're saying it actually involves uh, change and evolution. In that um, you know you're 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 trying to do something with Shibui that's slightly different, especially in the transparency realm than uh, perhaps the popular or mainstream way to make and sell Japanese whiskey up to this point. And, and then I, maybe we'll return to this because I'd like to certainly jump into the tasting now, but there, there's been uh, a pretty big news story in the past several months uh, about new regulations, uh, some of which involve transparency. So, so maybe we'll return to that. And then the other through line, uh, aside from, you know, change that I'm uh, noticing is, you know, this desire to know what's really going on in the bottle or in the glass. And I, I'm, I'm getting that from, you know, the, the dedication to the uh, traditional 
Okinawan rice as a as a grain, as like you said, the grain of the land. Uh, I don't I don't think most people when they think of Japanese whiskey necessarily assume it's rice based whiskey because it's largely not like you mentioned, they're just getting grain from Scotland, shipping it in. But I think that that desire to know what's in the bottle, know why it is that way is also uh, kind of important to this tasting and and your project at Shibui. Um, I think transparency is one of the biggest trends that I'm most excited about in the whiskey world in general. And uh, obviously when you're dealing with legacy brands like Suntory or just, you know, entire distilling cultures that have been doing something the same way for any number of decades, transparency is a nice catchphrase, but it's not always in the best interest of the bottom line. So it makes sense that 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 word will make some people nervous and, and it might be a bit of a hot button topic in some whiskey cultures. So that's kind of my takeaway from from what you were just talking about. I'm going to pour um, the first uh, taster in our, our lineup here because we've got a few to go through. Indeed we do. We, have, we actually have nine, and we're, we're only going to do, say we're only going to, we're only going to nose and taste seven whiskeys. <laughs> we actually have nine whiskeys uh, that we've, we've sourced uh, and that we, we've partnered up with our distillies to, to get access to. And, and to me, uh, we deliberately did that so that we could showcase just the spectrum of flavours that you find. And, and I think that that's one of the things that I get most excited about that there are a lot of great Japanese whiskies, and they are great Japanese whiskies, but they are... I think that there's in Scotland, there's such a spread of flavour profiles. And, and in Japan, I don't see that same spread because it's limited by the blending processes. So if, if the distilleries actually started to find a way to work together, um, I think we would be spoiled for choice. And, and unfortunately, we're not really spoiled for choice. There's a couple of big players in the field, which we've talked about. And we can't we can't talk about Japanese whiskies and not talk about them. So I don't want people listening to think that, you know, we're going out of our way to try and, you know, well, this is what they do. And we're doing something so different and look at us. I think, you know, what they're doing is amazing. And it's, it's, it's fundamentally, you know, they have reshaped and, and rethought what people consider about when they talk about Japanese whiskies. But it's also slightly disingenuous to say that this is the only thing that quantifies uh, Japanese whiskey. There is a there is a much deeper history there, and it it way goes way further back than the last hundred years. So I think that's the point, isn't it? Like to be like, well, we're we're not we're only telling half the story. So for us at Shibuya, we get excited because we're like we can we can start going way way back into the histories of distilling and grains and understanding why flavors what flavors could come out of looking at these ancient processes and that to me is just really exciting so in the glass right now this is grain select this is actually a hundred percent wheat whiskey so again really unique there's not a lot of wheat whiskies i'm a big fan of wheated bourbons i have a whole wall of bourbons over here slightly off screen uh, but i'm a big fan of wheated bourbons in particular and when we started to go through uh, what some of the options would be, we were like, "Let's do like a let's do like a hundred percent wheated whiskey and just have some fun with this, and we'll make this like our entry level whiskey." Uh, so this is it here. It's Grain Select. It is a hundred percent wheat. It is, uh, and it is wheat whiskeys that are distilled and matured in uh, a 
American oak and European Oloroso sherry casks from Japan, as well as wheat whiskies uh, from uh, uh, Scotland, which are also matured in bourbon and Oloroso sherry. They're married together and then they're all finished in rare Japanese Mizunara oak. Now, most people know about Mizunara oak or they've heard anybody that's kind of slightly geeky in the world of whiskey or knows Japanese whiskies in particular will have heard Mizunara oak. It is a very, very expensive type of oak. It is a nightmare to work with. It's, you know, hugely porous. It leaks. It's difficult. Uh, but it gives you an amazing flavor profile that you do not find anywhere else. So you get flavor profiles of, you know, incense and coconut. And it smells like, when you actually just smell like 100% Mizanara oak barrel, it smells like being in the inside of a temple. It smells like being inside an old church. Like it's just got this kind of beautiful, and it's not musty, it's just like incense and sandalwood and coconut. It's just got a really kind of aromatic to it that's just wonderful. And it's also got a beautiful red hue to it. But in the in the, the great select, mm. this is, like I said, 100% wheat, um, all married together in these, these uh, Mizanara oak casts after spending time in... in uh, bourbon and Oloroso sherry, 43% ABV. That makes a lot of sense to me because uh, when I was first nosing this, I mean, you know, grain, you know, you can assume what is meant by the term, you know, us, us, uh, grain select, right? Uh, but I, I don't necessarily know that the nose would have indicated to me that it was 100% wheat. It was super complex and perfumey on the nose, like you said, definitely got the, the coconutty, um, aroma as well it's 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 super pretty and light and i i think it, it's so funny because here in america when we say weeded whiskey we're talking about a whiskey that is not that doesn't have wheat as the primary grain in the mash bill we're talking about you know whiskey that is mostly yeah. corn still <laughs> so, it's amazing how much that wheat can make such a difference to the finished product of course of course so you don't need a lot of wheat to shift everything but when you do it all wheat, it's got a really beautiful. Yeah, it's so different. I, I would love for people to to try this purely, you know, above and beyond the fact that it's it's delicious because of the finishes and the blending that you did on it. I would just love people to try this because it's 100% wheat, and you're really not getting a whole lot of stuff that is 100% wheat and not called vodka. You will get wheat vodka. That's about <laughs> it here in the US and I'd love to see people play around with with more stuff like this but it's uh you know one of the things that I always think of when I think of Japanese whiskey is that there is such an emphasis on blending and such an emphasis on precision clean lines and uh it 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 seems like to me a lot of the luxury or premium aspect of Japanese whiskeys comes from the amount of care and precision that's put into that blending and maturation. And, and so I think that even just starting off with this, you know, so, sort of light hundred percent wheat expression, it we're already there. We're already experiencing this really deft hand and this really just super polished product. This is, this is so much more polished than so many American products that you'll find on the market already. That's good to hear. Thank you. It's to me, it's just, it's fun. Like it's, I love this just for to sip neat. I love it. Like I, I this is like a great go-to for me. Like, and it's a, you know, when I worked with different Scotch brands, I used to work with a guy, amazing guy called Ronnie Cox. I don't know if you've ever heard him. He was one of the, the, the biggest advocate I've ever met for all whiskey, but he worked for Glenrothes. And he traveled the world basically sharing his love and passion of, of, of Glenrothes and, and whiskey and, and, and blending and all these other things that are really, really cool. 
and he often talk, sat down and he talked to me about like whiskey with music. And this to me is like a really uplifting, like you could drink this before you go out for the night. You know, it's a good, like, like you could drink it early afternoon and not feel guilty. It's, you know, you put on some Led Zeppelin or some ACDC and rock out. Like it's like a fun, uplifting whiskey. It's not like a end of the night sitting by a roaring fireplace, chilled out. You know, that's, that's where you get your, you know, maybe our 15 year old or 18 year old or 30 year old. Maybe, maybe if you like smoky whiskeys, you're drinking, you know, Lafroy. 18 year old or a, an art bag or something like that you know end of the night but to me this is definitely that uplifting i mean you throw in a cocktail as well if you want to mm -hmm. i think that's the other thing we're not it's a great price point so you know being around, around about that 50 dollar price point you can still like have some fun with it throw in a cocktail put it in a highball put it into a, an old-fashioned or, or a cheeky manhattan you know mm -hmm. and it's just it holds its own it's just got a great great little flavor profile to it yeah, I would love that in a highball with a lemon twist. I think wheat, wheated, anything wheat plus lemon, uh, not not the juice necessarily, but the, the essential oils, I think. Um, yeah, just a little twist on a highball. I mean, come on. Uh, so, so yeah, that's that's fantastic. So we, we've got the the uh, grain select, 100% wheat. And now uh, what I've poured is the pure malt. So talk to us about the difference between the malt and the grain here. So again, and that, that is literally the, the only change we've made here. And I'd say if you want to go like the one thing, when we talk about transparency, transparency isn't what we are as a brand. It's a byproduct of just, if you do, if you do things right, then you can be transparent, right? If you, if, if you don't have any, anything to hide, if you don't have any shame, or if you don't feel like there's anything untoward about your process, then it's really easy to be transparent. So for us, that's it. Like it's not, we're not like we're going to go out there and be the most transparent brand, but, but because we do the things the way we do and we want people to get excited about it and we want people to at least engage in a conversation that's honest. Like you can't have an honest conversation if you're only telling half the story. And and for us right now, we're like, look, let's talk about all of it. And and with with pure malt, we're going from, you know, uh, the point I was going to make here was that if you go to our website, you don't even need to be super geeky to memorize all this stuff. You can go to our website, shibuywhiskey.com, and we give you a play-by-play -play of every single part of the process, the distillery, where it comes from, how it's made, the distillation process, the fermentation, the saccharification, all the super geeky stuff is all laid out there. Um, so, you know, for Grain Select, it is uh, it's wheat. We go through a continuous distillation process because that's the way that you distill uh, wheat whiskey and and then it goes through that maturation process on the bourbon the sherry and then tied together in the musanara oak uh, with the the pure malt it's malted barley uh, again we're using malted barley whiskies that are distilled in japan and, and blending them with malted barley whiskies from scotland it is double copper pot still distillation it is matured again in those bourbon cask all are also sherry cask and then we once the whiskies are blended together, we then finish them all in that Mizanara oak. And it's, it's, I talk about Mizanara oak, like the Big Lebowski. Do you know, do you know the, the movie, The Big Lebowski? I hope you do. If you haven't seen it, shame on you. Go, go and watch it. Uh, but it's, it, this is the rug that ties the room together. All right. So mm -hmm. Mizanara oak is the rug that ties the room together. And it really makes it inherently Japanese. We don't, you, you, you start to see now even some Scotch whiskies are, are been using Mizanara oak because they understand that it's just got such a unique flavor profile. But it is Japanese. It is inherently Japanese, and, and for us, that's that's the thing that really ties it together and, and makes it gives it that kind of shibui factor. But again, 100% malted barley, totally different beast. You move away from those kind of 
tea-like notes, you know, the jasmine tea and the white cracked pepper that you get from 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 the wheat whiskey from, from Grain Select, and you move right into like walnuts and fudge. And, you know, it's just that's super different. dark, yeah. super dark. I think fudge is a perfect note for this fudge because uh, it sits right on the back of your palate, like like fudge. Like it's almost like a fudge like after, you know, like a finish on the on it. It's it's yeah. there's something <sighs> musty is the wrong word, but there's something very deep and workshoppy about the nose uh almost like a wood like a wood shop almost yeah. you know you yeah. get you get some you get a serious amount of wood and and that combination with the, the the super chewy and textured flavor and mouthfeel of the uh of the barley is just really remarkable it's it, it's, it's super night and day with with the first one like you said I, it's a really interesting way to set up the tasting i, I like that this was the second <laughs> Strap yourself in, Eric. We're just warming up. Once we get to, yeah. and this is all. This is from one region. This is one one distillery that we work with in Nagata. Their master blender team, I think, are rock star, like absolute rock star. And it's just fun, like it's super fun. But for us, that was the thing. We were like, how do we how do we make this fun? Like to me, whiskey should be fun. And when it's not fun, you're doing something wrong. And there's a tendency. And we've seen it happen in Scotland, you know, it's not, not exclusive to Japan, this part of it, but there's a tendency for it to become this kind of like, I know more than you do, so I'm going to hold that over you, which is a ridiculous way for people to get excited about anything. Like the goal for us is to be like, we know a lot, but we're always learning and we're learning from our teams in Japan. We're learning from our teams in Spain and from Scotland. We're learning from, you know, whatever else we source barrels and casks and from other people in the industry that do cool and fun stuff as well. So we're not in it alone the way that we look at it is that all ships rise in the high tide. If we if we do something that we think is cool and somebody else does does it along with us, that's excellent because it only allows us to help tell our story. You know, we're not we're not looking at it like, well, you know, this is us and only we do this and blah blah blah. Like that's that's I don't think any whiskey company can really truly put their hand in their heart and say that they do something exclusively. But what we like to think is that we're not exclusively doing something but we're refining it and we're getting better at it every time that we do it. And for me, the, the whiskeys in Nagata are a great example of that. You know, being natural colored, I love the fact you can just hold it up to the light and you see the, these kind of beautiful, like when you go from green to light, which is definitely straw-like in color and golden, this starts to go into that kind of darker color. And then you can see when you hold the 10-year-old version up this, like which is just the, the 10-year-old big brother of, of our pure malt, You've got a little bit more kind of uh, smokier notes will come through in the on the ten year old version, but in the in the pure malt and in grain select, these are these are the ma majority of the whiskies are five, six, seven years old. There's a bit of eight and nine year old in them, but the majority of it is kind of around about that five and six year old age, and it just sits up. It just really develops nicely. It's got a lot of kind of character and complexity to it, and then when you move over to the ten year old, which we can do just now, so that you can kind of taste these back to back. Yeah, you shall see just how much the that little bit extra in wood just lifts everything just that little notch higher and yeah, you're going definitely like away from the uh going away from that fudge note and going into a much more aromatic a little bit smokier like you said i definitely get some of that smoke and uh, get a little bit of cedar on there as well mm. yeah you, you 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 can tell that the 10 year 
which as you mentioned, is just the, like you said, the big brother of the uh, pure malt that we just tasted uh, just on the nose even is much more complex, but you still don't lose that backbone of the barley, which I, which I love. Yeah. You know, you get notes of, no, it's definitely like chocolatey. There's a, like a nut, like walnuts, chocolate, and coffee is always what I get right up front. And then like what you were saying, a little bit of like smoke. It's, you know, you get that kind of hint of like a, it's like a carpenter's floor, like all those wood shavings mm-hmm. all coming together and just, you know, it's just got a great finish on it. Hmm. Yeah. A little, a little, um, a little warmer on the palate than the, uh, the younger expression even though it's uh, coming in at the same ABV, that's been one of my latest obsessions when it comes to uh, tasting notes is, is looking at the ABV, especially during a comparative tasting and, and asking, you know, how warm is this drinking and where is that warmth sitting? Is it sitting there numbing my gums? Is it, is it, uh, you know, lingering in the throat? Is it really like this one is just setting up right at the top of my chest and it's a, it's a really nice, uh, sensation, but just very different than the one that I tasted before it. So, uh, I like to, I like to take that warmth as a reflection of ABV and then, try and integrate that into the way that I taste. So uh, listeners may hear me talking about that more and more recently and then, and moving forward. Cause it's, I think one of my, uh, one of the places where I think people tend to stop with their tasting notes, they'll list their food notes, but then they won't really explain how the whiskey is traveling across their palate and how it's integrating into the rest of their body. So I, I think that's one of the reasons why I'm excited to talk about that phenomenon. That's right. Yeah. In Scotland, we, we talk about that feeling in the chest, the Scottish central heating, because it just <laughs> it warms the body through without it being on the tongue. Like it's not, it's not a burning sensation. Like when you drink, for example, yeah. when you drink new make spirit, when you drink something right off a still, all the heat is at the front of your tip of your tongue just lights up. The roof of your mouth lights up. You feel it in your breath, but you don't really feel it in your chest. Like you don't feel it. It doesn't, doesn't hit you there because it's the sensation is so heavy on your inside your, your palate that it doesn't really affect anything else for us you know we are talking about more mature whiskies we're talking even for non-age statement whiskies with grain select and with the pure malt even though they don't carry an age statement the, the whiskey has to be mature you can't fake maturity this is the thing like people in this conversation will go on way be, way beyond both you and i's lifetimes and people talk about older better younger whatever like it's nonsense maturity and age are two different things and when you start to understand that, then you start to think about whiskey differently. Like if you take a, a bad spirit and put it into a good cask, you'll get a better quality whiskey. If you take a good spirit and put it into a bad barrel, even if you take a good spirit and put it into a bad cask for 30 years, all you end up with is a shitty 30-year-old whiskey. It doesn't miraculously change overnight. I often talk about whiskey like like children, and I'll, I'll tell you why. Have you ever had a conversation with a seven-year-old girl or a seven-year-old boy Totally different. Seven-year-old girl talks to you like she's a CEO of a multinational corporation. Like she's got her shit together, she's got stuff going on, and quite frankly, you're probably eating up more time than she would desire in her day for you to pe- pepper her with insignificant questions. And seven-year-old boys are like running around in mud and eating dirt and falling over themselves and running into trees and stuff. And they're both the same age, but they're both very different maturity levels. That's the same way to think about whiskey. You know, it's all about the quality of the maturation. If you use great quality wood, then you should have a great quality 
maturation and therefore a, a mature palate profile. And the age tells you nothing. In the same way, that's why I like being natural color. Like if you use good oak, you should have natural color. We can't talk about, we use the best casks and we've got this and that, blah, 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 blah. And they're like, cool, do you use spirit caramel? Because spirit caramel doesn't really add flavor. It's a complete illusion. Like it doesn't really add flavor. It's not particularly pleasant if you taste it on its own. It's very, very, very bitter, but you don't need an awful lot of it in, in the you know, thousands of liters of alcohol that you would stir it into to let it dissolve. But it's a, to me, it's such an unnecessary part of any process, whether it's in Scotland, whether it's in Japan, whether it's in any other whiskies. I just don't like it. Like I just don't think it needs to be there. If you've got good quality oak, you'll get color. And if the color happens to be light, then it's still interesting for us to talk about why the color's like. Doesn't make it bad. It just makes it different. Sure, and I think the you know there are certainly spirits traditions around the world where dosage and certain boise, different different approaches to coloring and and flavoring in the blending process are are can be done really really well. But I think the point that you're making is that uh, you know for a lot of whiskeys out there where they're blending in some of these colorants, you know it's it's a false virtue signal because there's this false dichotomy between white or light bad dark 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 good yeah. you know and, and i think that, that that ties really well into your uh, distinction between age versus maturity and and i think you know people people need to just chill out about their whiskeys being super dark because to be honest i think when they're a little bit lighter they're they're a little bit prettier in some respects and uh like like you said like i'm, I'm not sitting here worried about like what else is in here because it's not super dark doesn't seem like that's the project. Maybe something else is the project. That's all it signals to me. And see when you start, get, and it's a great, like we have a whole ethos on it. Like we believe in barrels over bullshit. If you've got good barrels, then you don't need the BS, right? So don't, don't, don't give me smoke and mirrors. Just show me what I'm drinking and talk to me about it. When you start to look at our 15 year old and our 18 year old, like our 15 year old is real dark. Like it's real red and rich and real dark. Like I would put it up against, you know, I've, I've had, 30-year-old single malts from Scotland that are not as dark as, as our 15-year-old. And it's all natural color. And our 18-year-old is lighter than our 15-year-old. Why? Because it's the same cast types. We use uh, Fino and Manzanilla sherry casks. But we're using first fill Manzanilla and first fill Fino sherry casks for a 15-year-old. And we use refill sherry casks for our 18-year-old. And it's a slightly different ABV when it comes off the still because it's from two different distilleries. So you can see not only two different distilleries going into the same type of wood profiles, but you can see how the ABV starts to affect the colors and the flavor profiles that it's going to pull out from first fill versus refill. So it's that whole process to me is what I like. Like, I'm just like, that's cool. Like, I just, I think it's nice to go through that and to see something and go, wow, that, you can, you can look at the color spectrums that we have, which are super, super light, right through to really, really, really dark, mahogany, rich and red and, and beautiful kind of uh, earthy tones. And it's still all natural color. So I love that. Mm. I think that's part of the fun. Well, and I think it's great during the education and tasting process to be able to and to have have a, a one-two punch like that that you were just describing that actually functionally will break someone and be like, hey, here's a 15-year-old that's very dark and here's an 18-year-old, very, very similar, but it's lighter. And now we're going to, what we're going to do is we're going to break your assumptions about age and color 
and we're just going to focus on what's actually going on. And I think that's a that's a really useful uh, touch point. So I'm excited to get to those. But before that, we have uh, a few other expressions to get through here. And it seems like they might be these might be the rice expressions. Yeah. Yeah. So we're going to go into single grain rice whiskey now. This episode is brought to you by Near Country Provisions. If you're like me, here are some things you might be like. You live in the Mid-Atlantic. You enjoy meat. You highly prefer that your meat is local, sustainable, and comes from ethically raised animals. And you'd absolutely love for someone to deliver it to your door once a month. If this sounds like you, then you need Near Country Provisions in your life. Head over to nearcountry.com and check out their different, highly customizable meat delivery packages and also browse their growing seafood selection. As a thank you for being a Modern Bar Cart listener, you can get two free pounds of ground beef or bacon included in your first order after subscribing if you enter the code BARCART, all one word, at checkout. That's BARCART, B-A-R-C-A-R-T, at checkout. Near Country Provisions is the real deal, and I can honestly say that I'd recommend them even if they weren't a sponsor. The meat and the local farmers they work with are just that good. Now, back to the show. So this to me, and I said it before, this is what Japanese whiskies would have become had one guy not gone to Scotland for two years. And to put it into context, and I've said this before, but this is how crazy this process was. This is the equivalency of what happened in Japan is the equivalency of me right now going back to Scotland to say, <laughs> we're doing it all wrong here, guys. Every distillery, stop what you're doing. Here's what we need to do. We need to bring in corn from America. We're going to bring it in. We're going to put it into part of a mash bill. We're going to uh, continuously distill it. Uh, we're going to take that high alcohol. We're going to put it into a brand new American oak, heavily charred cask. And we're going to put it in the hottest part of Scotland. I use that in inverted commas, but we're going to put it in the hottest part of Scotland and let it mature there. And people in Scotland will be like, yeah, it sounds like you're trying to make bourbon in Scotland. And I'm like, yeah, but we're going to call it scotch. In Japan, they all got on that bandwagon and went, yeah, sounds good. So I'm not saying it's bad whiskey. And I think that what we, we produce, we, we're really kind of, we talk about it being World Blends. We launched in October last year. We're now in 30 states across the United States. We're really, really excited about the future and what we've got coming. We've got some amazing projects. We've got these distillies that we partner with working collaboratively now through projects that we've created for them. And it's to me, this we could reshape what happens in Japan. And I love that. Like, I think it's really funny that 100 years ago, almost literally to the day, it was a Japanese guy that came to Scotland that reshaped Japanese whiskey. It would be amazing if 100 years later, it was a Scottish guy going to Japan to reshape Japanese whiskey. So <laughs> That's fair. And, and, and this is a, certainly a, a tangent or a topic for another time. But actually, I think, you know, what you're describing sound, you're setting up, a, you're setting up whiskey logic and, and you're saying like, well, this, it's kind of weird that this happened in Japan the way it did. And, and it certainly is if you're using whiskey logic. But if you're using Japan logic at that time, uh, they were trying to become a world power, and one of the ways that they did that was by looking at the existing world powers and, you know, trying to take as much as they could from their playbooks. Which is why, uh, during the the Russo-Japanese War, like the Japan, you know, the Japanese Navy would absolutely obliterated the Russians, and you know, it was this it was this very very fast rise to power and prominence 
and and it so it doesn't surprise me from a cultural or geopolitical standpoint that the Japanese were so willing to do what they did. But it seems like what we have here in the next three is. Uh, you know, one of the more traditional, uh, you know, perhaps what Japanese whiskey would have looked like if we didn't go down this particular path. So I'm going to walk through, I, th I think I think that's correct. And I think what we were speaking about earlier is that every whiskey in the world goes through that stepping stone process to go from point A to point B. Japan was on those stepping stones and then took the hard left after the influence of Scotland, which is great. And really, you know, as a Scotsman, it's really flattering. But I also feel like it's it's disingenuous to then not look at the grain of the land being distilled and matured in oak, right? And that's what we started to look at with Shibui. We were, I was fascinated by the, this style of whiskey, and we've partnered. We've got three different distilleries, and like this this first whiskey that we're drinking here. This is Shibui, a ten year old bourbon cask. It's forty percent ABV. This was exclusively distilled matured and bottled in Okinawa, Japan. So everything in this is, is about those processes. We're using premium indica long grain rice. Why is that important? Well, it's a flavorsome rice. It's an aromatic rice. There are other rice whiskies out there and they're excellent, but they are very different from what we're doing. They use Japonica rice, which is a short, fatter grain. It's basically very, very high-end sushi rice. It's uh, delicate and, and very pretty, but we're not looking for that. We're looking for the starch to do something specific. So we're looking for flavorsome aromatic rice, uh, which we use. It's indica rice, predominantly all grown in Thailand. Some of it's grown in Okinawa, some of it's grown in other parts of Japan, but 95% of it that is, is grown in, in the Asian continent comes from Thailand, which is almost closer to, to Okinawa than, than mainland Japan. Um, it's in this sub, like Okinawa is a subtropical climate. And then, in the, I'm going to get super geeky here, but when you're trying to convert starches to sugars for any grain or any cereal, you need enzymes to do that. When you use barley or wheat, it goes through a malting process. So the malting process, you steep the barley and the grain in water on and off for about five days. You dry it out and then you put it in a malting floor or you put it into a big turbine and you kind of pump it with hot air and it dries it out. But basically, throughout this process of a floor malting, the enzymes start to generate within the grain itself, and that helps us convert starches to sugars when we crush it down, we add hot water and we add yeast, and we go through that fermentation process. With rice, we have a much more efficient way of doing it, and rice doesn't, doesn't, doesn't need malting, so you polish the rice, which means like you kind of rub off some of the, the husk in the, the outside of the grain, and you're left with the, the, the cereal part inside, we soak it in water, and then we add koji. Now, again, in comparative to other rice whiskies out there, they don't use white koji or yellow koji. We use indigenous Okinawan black koji. Koji is a fungus. You basically fold it into the mash, and it produces a barrier to bacteria. So the mold basically sets up like hyphae and spores at the top that basically act like an umbrella. It's like putting an umbrella up over your mash underneath, okay? And it stops bacteria from getting into that mash. And it's a massively efficient way of producing enzymes, right? Not only that, it, black koji creates an amazing, spectacular amount of citric acid. So it's packing flavor into the mash itself just in the process of converting enzymes. Then we go through the 
uh, fermentation process by adding yeast into that mash and then adding more rice into the process to, to, to act as a catalyst to produce more of, of the product and produce more of the alcohols that we're looking for. Then from that fermentation, we go into distillation. And distillation of rice, it's such a clean type of spirit. We use pot still distillation, but we use stainless steel pot still distillation in Japan. Don't need copper to remove the impurities that you would do using a heavier type of grain like barley. So it's a really unique Japanese process. And this first whiskey, the bourbon cast, this comes from Shinzato Distillery, still family owned by the founding families. It's in its seventh generation master blender. And the, the history of this distillery goes back to 1846. So what you'll hear straight away is that, well, how can that be when Japanese whiskey wasn't created until the 1920s? Like, because it wasn't created in the 1920s. Simply put, it wasn't created in the 1920s. No distillery. Like, and, and I'll give you an example of this. In 1824, when Macallan was making distillate, and that's when it was legally, right? So let me be very clear. When, when Scotch whiskey distillers say that they were established in 1824, what it means is they got caught by the tax man in 1824 and had to legally register as a, as a whiskey distillery. But the distillies in 1824, the distillies in, in, in 1780s and 1790s in Scotland, they weren't putting whiskey into oak at all. They were just making new make spirit. So they've found ways over time, over those couple of hundred years, the spirit has eventually been like, oh, now we should do it in this, transport it in oak. Okay, but it wasn't a legal part of the process that we had to put it into oak. It just was a byproduct of moving it from point A to point B. So for us, if you were to drink, you know, these big well-known Scotch whiskey distillies back in those days, they weren't using oak as a maturation tool at all. They were just making new make spirit. It was clear in color. It was beautiful and light. They'd maybe add water to dilute it down because it was basically coming off the still at 70%, 80% ABV, and it was complete and utter rocket fuel. But so for us, I think that's the frustration from my standpoint that people want to forget the stepping stone process. They want to say, well, that's just something else. And let me be very clear. You can stop any alcohol process at any point in the process and call it something different. Don't don't look at something like rice whiskey and say, well, that's just this in oak. Well, that part of oak maturation was real important. And it's not just something else. The whole process is unique and different for single grain rice whiskies. And that's something that I think we will start to see much, much more of coming out of Japan if we're lucky, because the flavors are stupidly good. Yeah. Uh, one point of clarification. So when you mentioned that the Koji... Uh, ferment and co the koji role in the fermentation process. Are you talking about a liquid mash or a solid mash, like a like a chew that they would they would uh, make uh, baijiu out of? So no, it's it's a liquid mash. So you're using hot water, mm -hmm. basically all all in the maromi, which is how it's all done. It's hot water, rice, and koji, and it's very it's like, almost like porridge like when you're going through that mm -hmm. process and then they're adding more waters into that process and then they start to add yeast in and it takes about, you know, you're going through eight days of, of, of just getting this, that enzyme process, but it's really efficient in what it does. So the, 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 the mashing process, comparatively speaking to going through a malting process using, using Koji is a massively much more efficient way of doing it. 
and it's used in everything. Yeah. Like it's used in soy sauce. It's used in you know, it's, it's a food grade koji is, is something that's you know really you know creates a, a beautiful umami flavor profile, uh, and you'll see that when we start to go through these whiskies. But for me, mm-hmm. when when this is from Shinzato Distillery, it's forty uh, percent ABV. This is a single stainless steel pot still distillation. Uh, the distillation, some of them are single, some of them are double, depending on the distillery. Shinzato do a single stainless steel pot still. And then this goes into ex-American oak bourbon. And to me, on the nose, I was just bowled over by this note of like tropical fruit, like grilled pineapples, and everything's mm. got this a la mode. So it's always got this like vanilla ice cream or coconut creme brulee or something sweet on the back end, but it doesn't hit you with that. It hits you with this fruitiness, this floral kind of bouquet, and then this just beautiful mouthfeel. Like it's just got such a clean palate feel. Yeah, it almost reminds me a bit of an of an agricole style rum in some of the. It's, it, it definitely gets tropical, but it's it's not just a pure ripe tropical fruit. It, it's like a modified. Whether you're talking about like you mentioned grilled or somehow somehow uh, otherwise processed, cooked or manipulated, it's it's really cool. It's 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 a bit of a funky nose to me. And again, it, it sort of immediately put me in that rum headspace and you know okinawa is definitely definitely the closest or one of the closest parts of of japan to uh those super tropical areas of asia so i think it's a a really neat expression i I, i'm glad that that you were able to walk us through the the rice choice um as being slightly different from some of the things that uh are being made with other types of rice and uh, yeah, I'd love to. I we just did an episode on on cane varietals featuring a, a Hawaiian distillery that's that's doing all heirloom, you know, single cane stuff. And uh, I, I think the the next thing that we need to learn about is as Americans, if we want to, you know, really get into this stuff, is the differences between you know the different types of rice as well. And it seems seems difficult because rice compared to cane is so small and tiny. It's like, well, how could we learn about this little tiny thing? But you know, obviously, based on what you're saying, there are differences, and these decisions make a big difference. So we need to start yeah. looking into it. There are, and, and, and similar with, with different barleys and things like that, the, the, the reason for us, indica long grain rice, it, it, it's in the title, but the longer grain, it's about absorbing flavor. So the grain itself is, is, is important because of how it reacts to everything else that we do in the process. So, you know, the fact that we use indigenous black Okinawan koji, the fact that we're using, uh, you know, the... the, the, the the, the grain to go through that process and the long grain indica rice and then just the maturation process so i think what's interesting you said a couple of things like that kind of like uh the, the smell and the nose that you get on this and then you, you were talking about rum so bourbon cask american oak gives you that vanilla but it also produces a banana style so to me i get like a banana fosters like there's a there's a banana sure. but it's like flambéed up with like that kind of toffee kind of caramel sauce and that kind of vanilla ice cream so it's all going on there which you'll get from american bourbon casks and then you've got umami. So the umami process of, of the koji, that's what's giving you that kind of like, you know, the, and it's delicate, but it's like almost like that, that meatiness or that, that kind of mushroom, you know, shiitake mushroom mm-hmm. style, that kind of like the earthiness that you, the, yeah. and, and those two things colliding is so unique. Like to me, I, 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 I'll say this, that I, I, I honestly don't know how many whiskeys I've ever tasted in my life. It's got to be in the tens of thousands, if not 
close to hundreds of thousands. Like it's it'll be it'll be insane just from all the work and the amazing distilleries I got to work with, doing cast sampling, working with the master blenders and going through different things throughout the years. But to me, I had never tasted whiskey like this, and that's what really got mm. me excited about what we were doing. Yeah, the umami aspect is certainly unique, and and I, you know, it's funny. Rice is such a different uh, distillate base than I think most Americans are used to. And and that's fine. Uh, if you're looking to just get a sense of what rice tastes like when it goes through a still, and this is not necessarily, uh, you know, the indigo long grain, it, it's just rice in general. Uh, I'm not sure what they use, but Mekong whiskey is a cheap bottle that you can source in many markets in the U.S. And it is like, it's the first rice whiskey uh, that I ever tried. And it's get get a sense for that distillate base. If you're listening to this and you're like, I've never had rice whiskey. I mean, you know, maybe you've had, you know, sake before, but but certainly not a, a proper rice whiskey. Do it because it's, again, so much different, so much more different than the corn or the wheat or the barley. It's just, it's, it's great to give yourself a library of distillate bases that goes beyond just your sort of straight and narrow Western whiskey. So I think it's very valuable and, and the Koji certainly adds a lot there. Yep. So I think it's a great point. And there's some, like, like I said, we're not the only ones out here doing rice whiskeys. There are some other great rice whiskeys out there. But what we like to strive for, I think, is a consistency. So the other rice whiskeys that I've tried, and they are exceptional, but we were talking about ABV earlier. They do a lot of, you know, there's a lot of single cast bottlings of stuff. And there's a lot of, uh, you know, ABVs that are very specific, but, you know, it's a bit of a roller coaster. Uh, for us, one of the things that I was adamant about. And that's why it took us so long to go through the process of, of selecting each one was we need consistency. So it's, you know, you, you, when you select a single barrel, you know, it's, you know, effectively the, the master blenders, and I talk about it like being, uh, the master blenders like a conductor to an orchestra, okay? It's their job to walk into the warehouse filled with different casks, and those casks are like musicians. They need to select every single musician to play together in harmony. And sometimes you need, woodwind and string for those light, delicate notes. Sometimes you need percussion and brass for the big, bold notes. When I look at some single barrels, it's all brass, like listen to a brass band. I don't want to hear a brass band play all the time. Similarly, I don't always want to hear just like a, like a string quartet playing all the time as well. I like the complexity, but I want consistency. Single barrels are like Yo-Yo Ma, one amazing musician that's just going to come out and nail it and you don't need anything else going on. You're just going to listen to him play. And there's a friend of mine, Andy Weir, that we worked together at Balveni and, and he now heads up actually uh, Aberlour Scotch Whiskey. And he always talked about single barrels being like Yo-Yo Ma. And I never forgot that because he's right. That's exactly what it is. But if you're going to be great, if you're going to be consistent and you're going to be memorable, you need to learn how to conduct an orchestra. And that's it. So for us, our ABVs are consistent. The, the the Nagata range, they're all from one distillery. It's all 43% ABV. When we look at stuff from uh, Shinzato, it's 40% ABV. The the whiskey that, that we're going to go into, this is a 10-year-old white oak. So this is European, mm. virgin European white oak that they've medium toasted the, the, the caramelized the sugars by mediumly toasting the, the wood. And then it goes in. It's never held anything. So there's no bourbon, there's no sherry, there's no fortified wines prior to us putting this single grain spirit into the wood. It's matured for at least 10 years. This comes from Masahiro Distillery. It was built in 1883 and established in 1883. And it's 43% ABV, so we come up a little bit in ABV. But it's consistent. So every time we bottle for any of our expressions, we're consistent with it. And that to me is about how good is the conductor? 
how good is the master blender? Because sure. walking in and just picking out single barrels can start to feel a bit like you're shooting from the hip. And for us, we wanted to make sure that we we're always creating a full orchestra playing all together, but sometimes very quietly. This uh, this virgin oak is really interesting. And in so, so to reiterate, this was not charred at all. This was just toasted. So we toasted, yeah, not 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 a heavy heavy char, like a number three medium toast, is what we okay. said. Okay, okay, D even darker than than the last, uh, and yeah, man, just on the nose, this this nose is so much differently. It's it nose is very European, you know. It's uh, is this the the lim limousin? Uh, it's European, yeah, European uh, yeah. limousin oak, and just got notes of. Again, tropical fruit, little hints of like macadamia nut. Oh yeah, it's just it's super complex. Like it's there's, yeah. there's a lot going on, but very quietly. So that's what I love about mm -hmm. it. It's, it's not sometimes you lift some Scotch whiskies, and I again, if I name anybody, it's it's not to pick on anybody. It's because I love them all, and so I'm fans of, of all of them. I've got many of them behind me, but you know, if I drink a Laphroaig. And Laphroaig is really complex. There's a lot going on. There's beautiful floral notes and lemon notes and everything else. But it's got a very distinct medicinal smokiness that most people get instantaneously right off the nose. And that's what dominates the palate predominantly, even though there are intricacies and complexities there as well. Similarly, if you go to the other side of the spectrum with big sherry bombs, you know, whether or not you're drinking a, a, a Macallan or something like that, it's like, you know, like a 12-year-old, Grand Reserva that went out to Taiwan years ago was just all first fill sherry bottles. And it was one of the best whiskeys I've ever had in my life, but it was just a big sherry bomb. That's brilliant as well, but we're not really looking for that. We're looking for everything to play its part. But what I think is interesting about these, Eric, is I don't think they're light. I think these are really flavorsome. And people think about mm. rice whiskeys being really light and delicate. And that's not what we're going for. Everything that we're doing, we're looking for flavor. There's no room for spectators in the processes for Shibui. Everything that we do has got to matter, otherwise we don't do it because it's frivolous. Why would we waste our time on it? It's got to have an impact in the flavor. And because we're so liquid-led, it means that every time we do anything, it needs to improve the flavor or have some reason for us doing it, whether it's for the aroma, whether it's for the color, whether, like, why are we doing this for any part of the process? Yeah, I, I really like the, uh, the, the virgin oak. I think it's, you almost can barely tell that it's a rice whiskey, to be honest. Um, you know, there's just so many other, so many other beautiful, you know, I, I would say more mainstream whiskey notes that, that come out of that. And I mean, it to me, it strikes me as a wonderful cigar whiskey. Um, usually don't think of like a rice whiskey as something that you'd like to enjoy with a nice cigar. That to me, uh, the, there's a spiciness to it that seems like it would just really, really nicely complement a, you know, what, whatever your favorite cigar happens to be. And, you know, whereas I would like to like to stick a cube on maybe one or two of these, you know, that, that to me just seems like it's, it's ready, ready for a, a neat approach with a, with a good cigar. So, uh -huh. you know, something I've never tasted in the rice whiskey world, to be frank. There you go. That, and that's, I, 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 I concur. I share that. I, I, I was bowled over by the quality Ever, like it's really great. Like Lauren, Rachel, and I, and and we have another member of the team called Brett. We do all our tastings. All the whiskeys come to the sample room here with me, and I'll usually go through everything first, and then I'll select from you know a bigger spectrum. We'll narrow it down, and then we'll start to hone in, and then we get together as a group and we just talk about it. And it's they're always, I think everybody's got a, a voice at the table, which I love, and it's so 
it's so great to see the reactions of people when they get to try stuff and be like, holy hell, like I love this or I'm not so keen on that or who, like who's going to enjoy this one? And I think that's, that's the challenge, isn't it? Like for us, we've tried some great whiskeys, but we're like, they're great, but they're not really what we would do. So it's not necessarily a Shibui whiskey, but it doesn't make it a bad whiskey. And that's something worth remembering is that, you know, the joy of whiskey drinking is that there's such a spectrum of flavor. Like whiskey drinkers aren't like any other drinkers. We're not like vodka. Most vodka drinkers are fairly brand loyal. Like they, you don't walk into somebody's house and they have 30 different vodkas, put it that way. Most people don't have 30 different vodkas. They usually have one or two, maybe two if you're lucky and uh, that they like to go to, the brands that they like to go to. But people who like whiskeys usually have a lot of different whiskeys at home or they go to whiskey bars and they'll try lots of different whiskeys. They like to experiment. You know, we're, we're much more... Uh, we're not as we're not as loyal. We're much more promiscuous in the world of what we'll know and taste, and um, and that's that's part of the fun of being a whiskey drinker. But here in the fifteen year old, I think this is one of the best whiskeys I've ever had in my life. And I hand on heart, that's the you know think of all the amazing brands I've got to work with in Scotland and and across the world. But I just think this is magnificent. Again, it comes from Masahiro, which was established in eighteen eighty three. It's just it's matured. This is a, a double stainless steel pot still distillation. The ABV is slightly higher, so it's 43% ABV, but it's matured in first fill manzanilla and fino sherry casks. So we're not using Oloroso sherry casks, which is what most people think about when they think about sherry maturation. This is a fino sherry, which is the driest white wine in the world, and manzanilla, which is basically from a different part of Andalusia, from uh, Jerez, just outside of Jerez de la Frontera, but it's on the coast. And because those barrels are on the coast and the Solera vatting system, those barrels absorb the sea salt air. If you drink manzanilla sherry, it's salty, it's salinity, so it's got salinity to it that you don't find in phenol. But that's basically what it is. It's a salty phenol sherry in, in its simplest forms. But that saltiness lifts the flavor profile. So you end up with this kind of sea salt caramel, like it's liquid gold. I just saw your face when you said that, Eric. What are your thoughts? My God. Uh... <laughs> The aroma is uh, very delicate compared to the palate. It's and and the funny thing is, you get a, a, a nice bottle of Fino or a nice bottle of thinking of Lagita Manzanilla. Yeah. You know, you knows that, and it's it's a uh, you know exactly what you're getting. And so when you said you know you know some Fino some Manzanilla, uh, I was expecting to really get that on the approach because they're fairly aggressive yeah. in the fortified wine world not in a bad way but they're they're very definitive and you don't get a whole ton on the nose yeah when you, when you yeah. drink lajita and i say funny the last business trip i took before i stopped travel uh, in 2020 was in, in at the end of january i went to actually went to lajita and went through and tasted some of their amazing, amazing sherries, like out of this world. Like, think of like, uh, you know, they're, they're, these these phenol sherries are light in color, but they're aged, so they're all matured in Solera vatting systems. And you know, whether whether they're oxidized or not will depend on what kind of coloring you get. But I've, I mean, you've not lived until you've tried some of these 14, 50 year old sherries from Lajita. They're just exquisite. And if you if you're ever in that part of Spain please visit La Gita because the tour guide that we particularly had was one of the funniest, most entertaining and educated uh, guides I've ever had the pleasure of, of sitting down and going around a, a, a winery with and just an amazing sherry bodega. You know, it's it's crazy that this 
the palate on it is like you said, it's it's the salted caramel. And I love I love salt in spirits, especially as it functions as an amplifier, right? You know, it amplifies the way that, that we experience some of these richer notes. And to me, like I'm like I'm I'm feeling very energized right now. It's almost like this has caffeine in it. Uh, I know it doesn't, but it's almost like you're right. That is one of the most unique things I've ever tasted. And uh, it is it has an energy to it that is a little bit surprising. It's it's weird to talk about whiskey as a verb. It's weird to talk about the energy in something. But but here, I think the barrels that you're bringing to this and this is a through, this is to me, the big through line is, you know, you, you said right right off the bat that one of the things that. Um, Shibui brings to the table for your producers is the ability to get their hands on some of these really beautiful barrels. And if there's one thing that we've seen through this entire tasting, it's just that those barrels are really, really doing the work here. It, it, it's it's really great. The blenders, of course, are the ones who have the ultimate say, but those barrels are just exerting this beautiful influence. So I think that that's one of the major victories that I'm seeing for the brands uh, thus far. Yeah, I would agree. I think you know they've done a the distillies have done an amazing job of cast procurement and we work with them so closely on that because we understand how important that is. Like you can't fake, it's the one, like you can't fake, I mean, you can't fake any part of the process in my mind, but some people have done a pretty good job of doing that. But I just don't think you can fake maturation. And people try and, you know, we're going to you know take barrels around the world and we're going to put them under the water and we're going to, send them to space and 101 other different things that people try to do but the reality of it is, is that's the fun just be patient let nature take its course like don't speed it up because it's done a pretty good job thus far like mm-hmm. we don't we don't we don't really need to do anything to speed it up uh, we just need to be patient and bide our time and then you get the effects of your patience yeah man uh, that's remarkable. So uh, I guess let's wrap up here with this this eighteen. You know, uh, a little bit more traditional. We're ending on the ending on the two uh, oldest oldest ones here. But um, it, you know, I, I took a picture while you were talking. Uh, I did take a picture because you know, just I have these on a, a white sheet of paper with my notes, and you can see exactly what you previewed us earlier. The eighteen is indeed much lighter than the fifteen. Yeah. And that's because one, we're using a different distillery. This comes from Kumison Distillery, which is the youngest distillery that we partner with in Okinawa. And it was established in 1952. So they're only like 70 or 80 years old then. Exactly. (laughs) They're the young ones. Uh, Whippersnappers, we would call them in Scotland. Uh, But they they do a single stainless steel distillation. It's 40% ABV, so it's lighter in ABV when it's in the glass, but it's also lighter in ABV when it comes off the still. And that's important. So what goes into the barrel is about eight, eight, eight percent. You know, sixteen proof lower than what we what we would put in with the with the Masahiro distillery for the fifteen year old. So it's going in at a lower strength, but it's going into refill casks, and that's really the important part. So the refill manzanilla and the refill phenol sherry cask. But what you pull out is really complex. So you end up with hints of the fifteen year old, but much more of this kind of umami mushroom earthiness much more of this kind of there's almost a darker richness to the nose compared to the 15 and it's just i get some some tea like notes for sure on the palate more so than the nose the nose is definitely you definitely get a little bit of that salinity on the nose but on the palate you get some of these like really wonderful 
you know, I think I think the tannin the tannin structure of these two, the mouthfeel is radically different. And, you know, it's certainly when you're talking about two whiskeys that, that underwent a, a very similar process, you know, you obviously want to compare what's what's the same, but also what's different. And so I, I like that you took us through the different ABV and the and obviously the uh, the the, the refill barrel situation, you can really, when you're doing this side by side, you can really pull apart the differences between them. And I, I like being able to tie them to those different procedures. I think it, I think it really helps you to understand what's going on in the barrel. Yep. That's exactly that. And to me, I but think both remarkable. <laughs> they're, they're really, I mean, the eight, I think the 18 year old is exceptional. Like there's, there are, there are no favorites as far as I'm concerned. I, I, I genuinely mean that. I think every one of these whiskeys is right for a specific moment during your day, during the week, you know, whoever you're sharing with. And I think, you know, this 18-year-old is, I mean, this is a, it's a $300 bottle of, of single-grain rice whiskeys from exclusively distilled, matured, and bottled in Okinawa from a small producer. So, you know, we're talking about that as well like that's the, i think that's the fun part you know we're not we're not talking about these big distilleries in japan that you know produce seven million liters these are you know the big the big players in japan are not are not small craft distilleries by any stretch of the imagination but the consumer here especially in the usa has this idea that it's really rare and really small in its production and that's why it's expensive it's really not they're, they're, these are big distilleries that produce a lot of whiskey, you know, if you've got a million barrels in your warehouse, you're not small. Like you're, 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 a, yeah. big, you're a big manufacturer of, of, of alcohol. And th that would, you know, you'd be twice the size of some of the distilleries in Scotland with that type of production facility. But what we're talking about are absolutely those much, much smaller distilleries that just produce excellence. And, and we're really proud to be a part of their journey. And we're really excited to help shape their future because they are working with us to do things that they've never done before. They're working with us because they're excited to be introduced to other distilleries that have a similar work ethic and ethos. And their master blender teams are starting to say, okay, we could do some stuff together now, can't we? And we're asking for that type of project specifically because we like the outcomes. And what we've seen today, like I said, I'm sitting down with some cast samples later uh, of some real fun stuff that we've got coming down the pipeline. We, we also have a, we've tried the 18 year old, but we have a 30 year old, which is rare cask reserve 30 year old, which is from Masahiro. Uh, we bought everything that they had. Once it's gone, it's gone, at least for another 10 years. Uh, we have another rare cask reserve coming probably early next year, which will be a 23 year old, uh, which is again, just exquisite, rare, limited in its, in its availability, but just a, a, an amazing treat if you get to get to taste it. But everything else, you know, we want to we want to be available. We want people to to know that they can go out and buy us, and, and we can keep bringing them something special. Our whiskeys from Nagata, you know, we we are bringing them exclusively to the United States, and we want people to be able to to go out and buy it without having to feel like I need to remortgage my house to get a bottle of age statement Japanese whiskey, which has slightly been what we've lived through here in the United States, unfortunately. And yeah, we're really excited about, about the support that we've seen and, and, and thanks to, to you, Eric, for, for allowing me to come on and share our story. We're really, you know, we are a small team of people that, that really care about what we do. And, and hopefully what we do makes a difference and people get to try something special. Well, I think just 
by the nature of what you do, the, the different choices you've made throughout the process here, I think you're making a big difference. Uh, I think it's super exciting, like you said, being able to uh, have a hand in the future of Japanese whiskey and, and focus on some of these uh, smaller, more artisan distillers as opposed to stuff that comes out of a facility that looks like a Toyota factory. Nothing against Toyotas. They're great cars. There's a reason why a lot of, so many people drive them, but uh, <laughs> but there's something special about being able to, to taste some of the flavors that you shared with us today. It definitely kicked a few nuts and bolts loose in my brain about how I tend to think about whiskey and, and, uh, you know, some of the expectations that I, that I had coming into this. So I, I think it was a super, uh, nutritional, useful way for me to, to, um, understand the category better and, and some of the nuances with it. So thank you for that. Can you just, before we jump into the lightning round here, uh, share with us what markets you're in, or if you have any um, partners in the U.S. where you're shipping these from, or places where you'd recommend people go and and um, look into them and purchase them? Fantastic. So I'll say this: we are basically everywhere except for control states. So if you live in a control state, you know what your control states are. But we're we're basically everywhere in in an open market uh, by the end of next month, and without calling any specific nice. retailers. I would just say any decent retailer, uh, if, if they've, you know, we've got some amazing distributing partners as well here in the USA, you know, go to your local liquor store if they don't carry Shibui and just ask for it. It's S-H-I-B-U-I and they can look up in the system what's available for you in that market and you can get to try and taste some of our whiskies. And we have everything in the spectrum, you know, we have whiskies at $50 and we have whiskies over $1,000. So there's something there for everybody. Uh, you know, we wanted to make sure that our whiskies were accessible and and price competitive and, and, and available. So yeah, you shouldn't have any problems if, if, you, if you're in a major market. Beautiful, beautiful. All right. Well, we definitely need to set up a round two here because uh, you know you've got some exciting new things coming out, obviously, and and we we didn't get to talk about the uh, the, the regulations with Japanese whiskey or some of the other you know exciting things going on in in Japan in particular in Asia in general. So I definitely want to mind you, uh, maybe some other time for that. But for now, let's jump into the lightning round. First question: uh, What's your favorite cocktail? And if you don't have a favorite of all time, what's something you've been more recently obsessed with? More recently, because the summer weather here in the Northeast is hyping up, I'm a big fan of a spritz. So just like a select spritz or an Aperol spritz or a Campari spritz, I'm all about it. <laughs> just because it's nice and light and easy, especially over pre-dinner. And then, you know, I, I drink a lot of just whiskey neat. So I like a lot of just like a nice whiskey. That's, that's, that's it. Uh, like you said earlier, a highball with a twist of lemon can't go wrong either. So select, uh, Shibui select with a, a twist of lemon, some ice and some club soda is a great refreshing drink. Mm -hmm. I am down with that. Next question. What is something, this is, this is a post COVID thing, by the way, this is, this is a new question. I should, I should uh, sort of preface this to people. This is a post COVID thing. And, and the reason I'm asking this question is because I feel like people need just a little bit more joy in their life. And I, I like to share people's little idiosyncratic moments so that maybe I, or some of our other listeners can be like, Oh, I really love when that happens too. And when it happens in the world, they can attend to it. And it'll be just that little special moment just from, you know, sh sharing this. So, uh, what is a seemingly small or idiosyncratic occurrence or event that always makes your day? And, and by example, mine is always when I see a bunch of little birds kind of chasing off a big bird. So I, mine's real simple every day. Like my, my, I have a five-year-old son and he is a fantastic, smart, just great, great little boy. 
and he, he also happens to be autistic and he he does things and he sees the world slightly differently to everybody else and he is every day he'll say something to me and make me see the world slightly differently through his eyes mm. and that to me is spectacular but every single morning since he's been able to climb out of his own bed he climbs out of his own bed and climbs into mine for a snuggle every single morning so i get to start my day with just having a little snuggle and it's brilliant it's just like and I know like people who've got kids, especially through the last uh, 16 months, are probably like, get away from me. Uh, and I understand that part <laughs> as well, uh, where you just need a bit of space and a bit of peace and quiet. But there's something just, you know, kids just see things black and white uh, and, and real clean and real clear about how they view the world sometimes. And sometimes we need a little bit of that because we like to live in the gray and make excuses for a lot of stuff. And kids don't need that. They just are just so black and white about the things that make them happy and it's nice to to see that sometimes with my son Julian. Yeah, that's a great one. Kids kids are fantastic. Uh, I love this. I'm I'm excited to keep on asking this question. If you could have a cocktail with anyone in the world, past or present, who would it be? Where would you go? What would you drink? Just paint us a, a picture here. Oh man, that's a great question. That is a great question. <laughs> I would love to sit. Do you know what? I really I do miss travel, and I one of my favorite cities is Paris. Uh, and I'd love to just sit in just a little, little off the beaten path cafe in Paris, you know, where you know, small, maybe four or five tables outside and the bread is fantastic and the wine, you don't get wine by the bottle, you get wine by the craft because nobody drinks bottles of wine. And, and I would love to sit and, and just, who would I love to talk to? God, so, so, so many people, I guess, but I'm, I'm drawing a blank, <laughs> drawing a blank at the moment. I guess I'd love to sit with somebody that really pioneered something, like sitting down with like William Grant, who created William Grant. So like some guy who's just like out of, you know, you've reshaped the world of whiskey, like, and you and your nine children built a distillery. Like, that's pretty cool. Like, I'd love to sit down with some somebody like that within within the world of whiskey and just sit down and talk about, about you know, he was such a pioneer at that time, like, what would you do now looking at the world the way it is now and looking at how your family re rethought about even single malt and created this category of single malt? What would you do next? You know, what if you were in this world today, what would you do next? Yeah. And William Grant and Sons remains to this day one of the most interesting and sort of like compelling portfolios out out on the on the market, whether you're talking about whiskey or some of the other things that they have in their portfolio. So yeah, that's really interesting. And yeah, wouldn't it be nice to to pull up a seat at one of those Parisian cafes and just <laughs> sit there with a carafe, maybe a carafe and a half, who knows? Uh, wrapping up here, do you have any unusual or controversial views in the spirits or cocktail world? I've often found that keeping my controversial views to myself has served me well, and I'm not very good at it. <laughs> so I often find myself in more hot water than I care to be in. But I, I would say this: I think that I think that what we're doing with Shibui is probably viewed as slightly controversial in the world of Japanese whiskey. And I'm sure there are a lot of people who own Japanese whiskey brands that aren't particularly happy that we're walking around talking about, you know, the the, the true history of of distillation. In, in, in Japan that outdates the 1920s and good I'm kind of good like I'm glad about that it's we're not we're not saying anything that's untrue we're just trying to get to the deeper conversation and the real history of what Japanese whiskey should be and how we should be appreciating it and I think if we can ruffle a few feathers doing that I'm okay yeah 
Yeah, here, here to that. Uh, well, Nicholas, this has been fantastic. Uh, what we always do as we finish up the interview is uh, just share how people can uh, connect with you in the digital space uh, and any social media or websites uh, for Shibui that, that you'd like people to check out. Fantastic. So you can check out at Drink Shibui and follow us on Instagram, which would be wonderful. I'm personally at Barley to Bottle. So at Barley, then the number two bottle. Um, and yeah, Take a look at it, shibuiwhiskey.com. Check out, you know, you can geek out and read all the little geeky details, look through a range. And then if you want to go out and support the brand, please find that, go speak to your local liquor store, ask them to bring in some Shibui and let us know what you think. You know, come on to our social, uh, come on to Instagram and tell us, you know, take a picture and tell us what you think. Awesome. Awesome. Amen. Well, uh, if you ever find yourself in, uh, in, in the capital of this, uh, of this nation, then uh, maybe we should put together a little educational event, get some people, uh, get some people together, and actually lay out some of these things and taste them in a group. I think that would be a really great extension for the uh, for the uh, the probably staggering amount of education that you already do. Um, so this has been uh, just such a treat, and and I, I want to thank you so much for not only the liquid that you uh, allowed me to taste through, but also the just the insights that you shared. So, um, Nicholas, thank you so much Thanks for so being much, on the podcast. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to be here. And for all your listeners at Modern Barker, it's been great to speak with you all. And I hope to see you follow us and we can connect online. Cheers. Cheers. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Bar Cart. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if they don't download podcasts, they can always stream our episodes on their desktop directly from the show notes page at modernbarcart.com. The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is, the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start a cocktail revolution here, and by spreading the word, you're helping us fight the good fight. You can always reach us by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com if you're looking for cocktail or bartending advice, or if you're a pro who would like to pull up a mic and be interviewed for all to hear. Also, definitely follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Modern Bar Cart for cocktail porn, recipes, and entertaining tips. And keep an eye out for new product releases and special offers, which are happening all the time. We love our listeners and we really enjoy giving you exclusive discounts and sneak peeks at our latest and greatest cocktail projects. This episode may be over, but for you, the mixological fun and adventures are just beginning. So remember folks, drink responsibly and experiment boldly. This episode was made possible with editing and sound design by Samantha Reed, Japanese whiskey insights and tastings courtesy of Nicholas Palaki of Shibui Whiskey, and a little bit of interview magic by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2021.